I've known uh, Harvey Weinstein for a long time. I'm not at all surprised to see it. Every woman lied when they came forward to hurt my campaign. The stories are total fiction. Total fabrication. All of these liars will be sued after the election is over. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who keeps declaring opioid addiction a national emergency and then forgets about it. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So Trump talked about opioids during the campaign. It was an important issue in blue-collar communities where epidemic drug abuse has often followed economic decline. In March, Trump named a commission on the problem to be headed by Chris Christie. Remember him? Then in May, CNN got its hands on a Trump administration budget memo that proposed virtually eliminating the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which would take the lead in confronting the opioid crisis. Trump planned to cut the budget of that office, which coordinates $31 billion in drug abuse spending, by 94 percent. And in line with that, he didn't appoint anyone to head the office, the position known as drug czar. After that story came out, Trump backtracked and restored much of the funding. And last month, he finally got around to appointing a drug czar. And who did he pick? A congressman from Pennsylvania named Tom Marino. Marino had the key qualification. He was a very early supporter of mine, Trump said at his press conference yesterday. He's a great guy. But on Sunday, the Washington Post in 60 Minutes revealed that Marino might not be the ideal person to lead a government attack on the easy availability of addictive pain pills. It turned out that Marino was one of several members of Congress who last year joined the nation's major drug distributors to lobby against restricting opioids. The drug industry and its lobbyists gave Marino and his colleagues more than a million dollars in campaign contributions. So following the 60 Minutes story, Marino withdrew from consideration for the job. And so, Trump is back where he started, declaring a national emergency that he isn't going to do anything about. Before we get started, I want to tell you about two live shows coming up. The first in New York on November 8th is The People vs. Trump. It's the one-year anniversary of, you know what, the election that requires me to continue doing this show. It's at the New School Auditorium. And then on November 14th in San Francisco, we're doing another Trumpcast Live with Jamel Bowie and Virginia Heffernan. It's at the beautiful Norse Theater. You can get tickets for both of those events if you go to slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Today on the show, impunity for sexual harassers and predators. Is it coming to an end? I'll be back to discuss that subject with Emily Bazelon of Yale Law School and the New York Times Magazine and the Slate Political Gab Fest, right after we do the tweets. People are just now starting to find out how dishonest and disgusting fake news NBC News is. Viewers beware, may be worse than even CNN. The fake news is going all out in order to demean and denigrate such hatred. Such a wonderful statement from the great Lou Dobbs, 
we take up what may be the most accomplished presidency in modern American history. I was recently asked if crooked Hillary Clinton is going to run in 2020. My answer was, I hope so. Dem Senator Schumer hated the Iran deal made by President Obama, but now that I'm involved, he's okay with it. Tell that to Israel, Chuck. I am pleased to welcome back to the show Emily Bazelon. Hi, Emily. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I couldn't wait till Friday to hear you on the Gab Fest. <laughs> Thursday. I listen on Friday. I usually listen on Friday, even though it goes out on Thursday. Um, I've got an idea to run by you. Yes. It's sort of a theory. And the theory is that Trump's election is somehow bringing about an end to immunity for powerful sexual harassers and abusers. Does that seem to be going on to you? I don't see it so optimistically. But you're talking, of course, about the um, reaction to the Harvey Weinstein revelations and then also to the demise of Roger Ailes at Fox, right? Exactly. Now, the Ailes thing was well underway, you know, before. I'm not sure how directly that was tried to, tied to the Trump thing. But, you know, the way Fox have finally had to deal with all of that in the wake of Ailes and, you know, the the sort of compounding revelations about sexual harassment in Hollywood more generally, and just the kind of outpouring it feels that we're getting on social media about sexual harassment and abuse in so many different walks of life. Right. So then I guess the the sticking point is how do we explain that for President Trump himself, there have been no consequences. And in fact, the women who accused him are kind of outside of this warm like bath of support and protection that um, other women have been greeted with. And I suppose that has something to do with the aggression with which Trump denied the accusations and some of his associates went after him. And then I think it also has to do with Steve Bannon's very clever decision to bring back all the accusations against Bill Clinton, right? Because that just politicized the Trump accusations so successfully. Yeah, I mean, I guess in Trump's case, you know, there was a referendum called an election and there were enough people, although a minority in absolute terms, who didn't care enough about that to to vote against him. That was kind of a backwards way of putting that. But he won the election despite the revelations. And being elected meant no legal case could go forward really until – he left the presidency. So in a funny way, he kind of got in under the wire. But we're seeing this reaction to all sorts of other Trump-like men who were getting away with it and now are not immune in the way they seemed to be before Trump was elected. Yes, although I feel like we also have to add Bill Cosby to the mix and the fact that the jury did not convict him, right? So What unites these four men? They've all been accused essentially outside of the legal context, although that's not really true about Cosby, but just go with me for a second. They've been accused, or at least the public became aware of a flurry, a kind of pattern of accusations made by multiple women that were not 
originally adjudicated in a court of law. So these are not offenses for which these men have been convicted. And yet, for some of them, there have been serious consequences. And we're seeing Weinstein, as we saw Ailes, essentially being drummed out of the profession. And yet, this was not disqualifying for the person who holds the highest office in the country. Right. Well, I guess to go at it a different way, I want to ask you, you know, what does impunity consist of here? What what made these men previously feel that they were not subject or not be brought to justice or not stopped as sexual abusers? I mean, how did they get away with it until now? I mean, I think some of it is the sort of cultural resistance to believing women when they make these kinds of accusations for which there isn't necessarily physical evidence. And that resistance translates into women being reluctant to come forward publicly. Then the role of secrecy is incredibly important here, right? I mean, we both have with Ailes and Weinstein um, a pretty serious set of accusations about enablers, people who were around them, who knew what was, what was going on, who even like helped set up some of these meetings and encounters. And then we have non-disclosure agreements in which companies essentially buy off people by their silence. Yeah, and those are perfectly legal, even if the accusation is of a criminal offense. I mean, that always mystifies me a little bit, that if you rape somebody, you can make a deal with them where you essentially pay them not to pursue or make public the allegation, even though it's a it's a super serious criminal offense. Yeah, it's a really weird idea, right? I mean, it's also a weird idea that we could tell people that they would not be allowed to contract for secrecy. But I totally agree with you that when you start imagining that people can essentially divert or dodge to the criminal justice system by paying enough money, something seems like super off and unjust about that. Now, part of what's happening with Harvey Weinstein now is that people who did, women who did sign these non-disclosure agreements are essentially saying, I don't care. I don't believe you can do anything about it. And even if you can, I'm going out there anyway. I mean, that's sort of unprecedented, right? I think so. I can't remember if we saw any of that with Ailes. But yes, I have also noticed that. And I think it's a big step. It's being taken in a context of a ton of momentum, right? So we have this, you know, blockbuster report from Jody Cantor in the New York Times. Then we have Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker. I also Jody's co-author, Megan Toohey. So these big reports, and then, as you're saying, a kind of flood of additional allegations from more and more prominent people. And then it seems like, legitimately, some of the um, accusers think they can throw aside these NDAs because it's really hard to imagine Miramax or, you know, Fox. If that happened there, too, it's hard to imagine a company coming after them. The PR from that would just be so explosive. But part of what clearly has been happening in in Harvey Weinstein's case in particular was a successful intimidation of the press. I mean, journalists had been looking at these over the over many years. Many journalists looked at allegations against Harvey Weinstein and either couldn't make the accusation stick because they didn't have accusers on the record or were intimidated by the uh, Miramax lawyers. And, you know, their higher ups were intimidated and made to think that they would they would be sued and would be putting their companies at risk if they went if they were out there with this story. That's right. And then there was all this use of the press to um, discredit women, which Weinstein was very successful with. I mean, Jacob, what do you make of the the kind of 
trope out there that it was only as Weinstein became less powerful um, and less of a, you know, just total huge figure in filmmaking that this that the, these stories broke. Do you think that's related to the timing here, or do you think this has to do with the sort of backlash against um, Trump and what happened to the women who accused him? Well, clearly you have a lot of things going on at once, and one explanation doesn't preclude the other. But I think it's also worth pointing out that the press is less powerful, too. Yes. Right? The You know, the media organizations that would have been in a better position to stand up to to intimidation and bullying from someone like Weinstein are, you know, much more at risk from a lawsuit. And we've just seen in the Gawker case, a news organization put out of business by the use of a of a defamation suit. So, you know, that that cuts both ways. But I guess, you know, I think the the biggest factor has to be the change in standards, the rising standards. And my feeling, although I'm kind of fumbling around to try to give evidence for it here to prove it, is that Trump's election somehow prompted this kind of backlash. I mean, or backlash to the backlash that, you know, that, that this sort of thing that wasn't acceptable before, but was nobody really knew it was, it was the sexual harassers were winning and now they're losing. It's really interesting. I mean, there's obviously something cumulative here, too. Like when you think of the progression from Bill Clinton to Bill Cosby to Trump to Ailes to Weinstein, each of those scenarios has played out differently. And we could go back to Anita Hill's accusation against Clarence Thomas, although for the public purposes, she was all by herself. And I think that made it much harder for her. I wonder, though, I mean, also what's so interesting to me about what you're saying is usually, or at least often, one thinks of the way in which Trump is changing norms and standards as being a deterioration, a kind of erosion of norms. And if your thesis is right, then what we're seeing instead is a kind of reassertion and actually like a triumph of a norm that is actually more feminist and protects women in response to Trump, um, which is not necessarily what we would predict in other domains, right? Right. I mean, it's one of these sort of rising standards dramas where, you know, things in a way look terrible because all these past practices are being exposed. But it's all coming out. And, you know, if if I'm right, maybe we've elected our last sexual predator as president. Right. I mean, that would be really interesting if, like, Trump is the last person who gets away with um, being elected in spite of this kind of string of accusations following him. And then I suppose you'd make some kind of argument about how um, there was like a surge. The the, the, the cultural um, support at this point for women making accusations, especially if there's a group of them, was strong enough to like overcome the wave in favor of Trump and that the sort of bigger wave wins out. Um, I'm not quite there yet. I don't have quite enough as much faith as you do, but I really like that idea. I mean, you know, this concept of impunity, which I don't know where it comes from exactly. I think maybe it comes from from human rights law or certainly people in in human rights talk about Mm -hmm. the problem of impunity a lot, which is essentially everyone's getting away with a certain category of crime. You know, I mean, in the in our history, you know, white people who committed crimes against black people in the pre-civil rights movement South had this kind of impunity. They couldn't be prosecuted effectively. You know, people who threaten or murder journalists in in 
Mexico right now, where, you know, you talk about them having impunity because it's basically impossible to prosecute them, even when people kind of know something about who committed the crime. But when the, when impunity goes away, it tends to go away in a categorical way. So, and then you can prosecute those people and then they can't get away with it. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, once that's broken, once the seal is broken, it's like a lot of things pour through it. On the other hand, just to play devil's advocate, how important is it that this time around we are seeing famous actresses, like people with whom, people who have a ton of fans, people who have been, you know, glamorous and idolized in so many different forums and for a very varied audience of Americans as well as internationally. Like, right, does that mean that when people, when women we've never heard of come forward next, that they're going to be given the same kind of respect and and deference? Well, that's a very interesting and important point, I think. And, you know, you could say the same thing about the the Fox News cases. Many, not all of those women were on-air personalities, you know, so they had they had a public platform. They had some celebrity to help sort of support their credibility and support their case. And, you know, we haven't seen, I mean, there have been stories and books written about the same kinds of behavior, you know, on Wall Street, for example, where surely it is it is prevalent and, you know, it's ba- if, as bad, if not worse. But those women are not famous. And while you've, you hear the stories, there hasn't been the, the kind of... Uh, the kind of outpouring that you've had in these in these media industries. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I still worry about the next set of allegations in which women come from nowhere. They're anonymous. They don't get the same benefit of the doubt. And then they get trashed, right? I mean, this even happens when Gloria Allred, who is like the famed lawyer for victims, when she is involved, people still try to tarnish the women, um, the people who are making accusations by saying they're just in it for the money or they're making stuff up. Like, I just worry that when it's not Ashley Judd and Sarah Polly and Gwyneth Paltrow, that the public may not be as willing to believe people still. I mean, you're you're sort of getting at a maybe more cynical theory of the case, which you you uh, pointed out a little earlier when you said, "Oh, well, you know, some people say Weinstein was just weakened, but you know, his his power was going down anyway." You're saying, that, and this is a you know, this is a this would be a kind of very harsh take on it, but there's just a power balance basically, and if the accusers have more power than the accused. The thing happens, and if the accused is more powerful, or not even the accused, if the if the abuser is more powerful, then accusers don't come forward because they have no chance of succeeding or not enough chance. Yeah, I still worry about that. I think that's right, and I feel like the Cosby trial and Trump militate in that direction, right? Whereas Ailes was vulnerable like Weinstein, but maybe that was partly the sort of spectacle of this happening at Fox, the conservative news network. And also, like, he was really old and kind of washed up as strong, but, like, he was in decline, too. Yeah. I mean, with, you know, Cosby, I mean, you know, we don't want to blur together the legal outcome with the overall outcome, right? I mean, there's specific reasons why that case is very tough, statute of limitations in particular. And most of the women who were uh, allegedly Cosby's victims just didn't have standing to bring – charges just couldn't be brought. It was too late. But Cosby is – Finished. I mean, his reputation is destroyed. You know, his whether he, you know, whether he goes to jail or not, those women have been vindicated, and he's been his his 
uh, reputation has been terminated. I mean, totally you're right. Destroyed. If you're thinking about it as like him being discredited and then addressing the issue of impunity, I, I completely agree with you. I guess I'm thinking about what, you know, what ends this behavior and is there a next Bill Cosby? And looking at what happened to Bill Cosby, the next Bill Cosby would certainly take take note that this doesn't look like something you can get away with anymore when 10 years ago he might have drawn the opposite conclusion. Yeah, I think that's right. I hope that's right. But uh, back to Trump, which is where we started the conversation. I mean, it does leave you in a funny position where this has been maybe triggered by by Trump's election. But this man who you know bragged about sexual abuse, who made exactly the point about the old world, which is that if you're famous, you can get away with it. Maybe that's not true anymore, but he's weirdly grandfathered in. Right. And also what he said, at least, was caught on camera, which, you know, should be the kind of evidence that makes a difference here. Right. So I think as long as Trump is in office, it's hard for me to really see how the um, clear, clear lesson is one that impunity is over. But we've been sort of batting this around. I mean, is your takeaway from this case more positive or more negative? I guess another thing we didn't even talk about is the risk that their excesses, you know, when you have pent up injustice, you can get bloodletting that goes to another extreme, either because they're people who are unfairly accused or don't have their procedural rights or, you know, you simply get a, a, a kind of phenomenon, mass, mass hysteria phenomenon like a witch trial. That's true. I don't feel like we've seen that in the kind of sexual harassment of a famous person accusation context, but I could be forgetting something. I mean, look, I see this as necessary but not sufficient, if that makes sense. Like, it's really important that um, this reporting came out, that women spoke up, but, you know, is sexual harassment going to continue in all kinds of obscure corners of the country? Yeah, I think it will. And I think it's still going to be hard for women to come forward because um, not everybody like has the microphone that famous actresses do. I've been speaking to Emily Bazelon of the Slate Political Gab Fest, the New York Times Magazine and Yale Law School, among many other distinctions. Emily, thanks for talking to me today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Do you follow us on Twitter? We're easy to find, at RealTrumpCast. You'll get all the news about the show, plus extras. What extras? You'll find out more about John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. That was him, of course, reading the tweets earlier. And in the control booth, Jason DeLeon, our producer. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast.